Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. The explosion in market volatility that resulted from the COVID crisis was all-consuming in March. Massive one-day moves in broad equity indices, correlations that approached 100, and a breathtaking crash in the price of oil were factors that left investors unable to consider much more than the wreckage in front of them. But for Jake Doft, the founder and CIO of Highline Capital, the crisis has provided a truly unique opportunity to step back and contemplate change and the investable implications thereof. The crisis has forced businesses and consumers to adapt, not just accelerating trends already in place, but also providing exposure to new technologies, new approaches to supply chain management, new ways to interact socially, and potentially new preferences on where to live. My discussion with Jake is a compelling look into how an investor can skate where the puck is going to be, evaluating the long-term opportunities that emerge from this challenging time. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please be well. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Jake Doft. He is the founder and CIO of Highline Capital, a man I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years. Jake, it's great to connect with you today on the Alpha Exchange. Dean, thanks for having me. Well, we're in the midst of a a truly unique and challenging time period for, for the country, for the world. Certainly, markets took it on the chin there in March. Things are pretty fast moving. As we get our conversation underway, I'm hoping you can step back and just give us, from your perspective and the team at Highline's perspective, what are some of the things that truly stand out to you in terms of market action over the past couple of months? I think what you've seen in markets seems very logical to me over time. In fact, it may appear hectic, dramatic, but those dramatic moves were warranted. There's a couple of things that have gone on, but there's a few things that have gone on concurrently that, that people forget about. The first is COVID didn't happen alone. COVID happened concurrent with an oil crisis. So if you think about the legs of a stool that the economy sits on, it wasn't just that that one got kicked out, two got kicked out at the same time. That probably ended up being a good thing in the long run because it sent the Fed and other government bodies into overdrive probably sooner than they would otherwise have done. So I understand why the move down happened so aggressively. People did not expect this to move globally so rapidly. People did not expect this to go out of control, and it did. So I can understand why markets have plummeted. But I also understand why they've come back. I I certainly didn't predict it. But in retrospect, the Fed injected an enormous amount of liquidity into markets. At the same time, the $1,200 checks that the Treasury sent out uh, hit consumers. And generally, businesses did terribly, but not as terribly as some had forecasted. Here we are. Another thing I noticed concurrently was that liquidity was quite awful in the market. This is something that has been building for a decade. But at least in the equity market where I specialize, spreads were wider, the size of the bids and offers were smaller, and it was generally difficult to trade anything other than the largest names. And then not surprisingly, you saw the Russell underperform 
the S&P by something like a thousand basis points through the sell-off, probably because of that illiquidity, as well as the fact that smaller businesses just don't have the resources to survive these short-term pain like larger businesses do. I want to get to how in the midst of the crisis, you saw specific aspects of your own portfolio impacted. But first, I wanted to ask you about your reference to oil prices and, of course, the Saudi-Russia issue that sent prices pummeling, perhaps opportunistic from Russia's standpoint, seeing something where they could go after U.S. shale. Was that maybe a tipping point for you guys to sort of recognize that, okay, this is not just a risk off, this is something much bigger? To what degree was the sell-off in oil prices a signal to you that markets had quite a bit in front of them? The whole oil story caught me off guard. We're not really involved in the energy sector. I wasn't paying close attention to the price of crude, to the politics around it, the geopolitics around it. But I'll tell you what it did do for me. When I read about it and when I saw that crude gap down that first day, I immediately realized that credit was going to be a problem. Oil is so important to the high yield market. And the last thing this market needed was a credit problem. As yields widened in the aftermath of that oil move, I did get more worried. But I think we had already gotten to the point where we understood that COVID-19 was major, was a big, big, big deal. And I think what helped us get to that realization was that our portfolio was so poorly positioned for it. I think if I hadn't owned things like El Dorado Resorts, which is a levered casino company, and other businesses like that, then I wouldn't have been so keyed into the fact that COVID was such a serious threat to businesses. And I think being exposed to those companies, it hurt us initially, but it actually made us act faster. And we started to act very, very aggressively, while losing money, by the way, to position our portfolio in a much more appropriate way. And thankfully, we did that early enough that we didn't get our butts kicked too badly in the initial parts of COVID and then eventually got to a portfolio that was the right portfolio for COVID and ended up having a really benign and successful experience through the whole market action from March till now. Your orientation has always been on the bottoms up side, an expert at analyzing industries and trends and on the valuation front as well. Some of our conversation so far is focused on these sometimes overwhelming macro forces. Could be COVID, but then how that impacts things like crude interest rates, the central banks respond forcefully, as you mentioned as well. How does a firm like Highline, with expertise on the bottoms upside, how does it incorporate the macro and recognize the importance at times of macro forces, but not get distracted by them and execute on your framework? I have a bunch of analysts who are experienced and focused, and they each have an area of expertise within our economy that they study. So they're constantly developing bottom-up ideas. At the same time, as a group, we love to compare notes across industries, and we come up with a handful of themes that we believe in at any one time. So we have a bunch of bottom-up analysis and bigger picture themes that we try to combine together. If you then add to that any relevant 
macro perspective, it's super helpful in trying to prioritize where we should spend our time. Because if you add up the number of ideas that the analysts develop on their own, it's way too much for us to focus on at any one time. So we certainly think about macro, also add in our thematic views, apply them to the company-specific ideas that we've developed, and that then allows us to narrow down the funnel of ideas to what we really want to spend time on. And I think times like this, where both the macro and the thematic are in overdrive, we really have to consider that and consider that every day, not just every week or every month. And I think bringing that aspect of the thinking to the team is my job. I am not assigned to any sector like the analysts are, and I have to distill all the information that we learn as a group down to something actionable, down to something usable. I try not to burden the analysts too much with macro thinking. In fact, there's many times I try not to burden myself with it. There are times when macro may be interesting, but it's not that relevant. Today's certainly a time where macro is very relevant. But I take the bottom-up workflow of the team, the thematic thinking that we develop as a group, and combine it with macro to prioritize and ultimately build a portfolio. You had mentioned the sort of information content of the losses, let's say you experience owning a leveraged business like a casino, but the value in that price signal. I'm curious, just in terms of the sell-offs or the relative winners or losers you experience in the portfolio during that really high vol period in, in March, you talked a little bit about small caps before. That's a big underperformer. Value is a big underperformer this year. Balance sheet leverage seems another big underperformer. What are the lessons just from the portfolio construction that you had going into this. And as you've emerged and you've made a lot of shifts in your portfolio, what are some of the, not specific to the sector level, but what is the lessons represented in terms of the portfolio shift? Yeah. I think there's going to be two phases to all of this. Phase one, which started, I think in early March, was the realization or the market's realization or market participants' realization that COVID was a big deal, was going to have a dramatic impact on our lives and on our economy. And there was a flight to quality. There was a flight to secular growth and out of value. There was a flight to liquidity. All things that I think are fairly obvious and all things that happen in a lot of dramatic situations. If you've lived through 98 in the long-term capital, if you've lived through September 11th, if you lived through the recessions of 00 to 02 and 08, 09, and you look through the financial crisis, the commonalities are that quality outperforms, that growth outperforms value, that there's a flight to liquidity. All these things happen. So I think when we came to the realization that COVID-19 was a big deal and it was going to change things and change things dramatically, the first types of decisions we made in our portfolio was to follow that exact playbook and to move into the secular winners, the Amazons of the world, move out of leverage, move out of small cap. Obviously, if we had been involved in a lot of energy, I probably would have run for the hills as quickly as I could. And we moved into some defensive businesses as well. That was the easy decision. That was the obvious. That's phase one. 
But as soon as we got our bearings, we started to think about phase two. And for me, phase two is the future. When this is all gone, what's the world going to look like? And I don't think that's so obvious. You know, the, the image that we've been using internally is the image of an iceberg that floats along the water. And all you see is what's on top of the iceberg. Buying stocks like Amazon and Ring Central and Zoom, that's above the water on the iceberg. That's the great calls, but that was the obvious first call. Now it's time for the below the water, the bottom half of the iceberg type of stock picks. What are the less obvious? What are the more subtle, sophisticated ideas? Maybe ideas that won't be evident in the near term, but will pay off over time. That's where we're moving the portfolio now. And I think we're trying to be as aggressive as possible. We want to get there before others think of these things. We're figuring out ideas with one type of lens, and that is it's not about germs or about hygiene or about COVID because it may take some time, but that will come and go. And the obsession with hygiene will come and go. But in the long run, we all agree something will have changed about this world. And I think it's this. A lot of the things were forced on us and we're putting up with them and we're living with them now. And some of them are really tough and annoying, but some of them aren't so bad. Some of them we actually like. The other analogy in our firm that we talk about is that commercial for Life Cereal when we were all kids. Mikey's brothers forced him to taste Life Cereal thinking he was going to hate it, but he ended up liking it. Mikey likes it. That's the famous commercial. It's one of the best commercials I've ever seen. Well, today we're being forced to taste certain things. We may not like all of it, but some of it we like. So I'm going to try to figure out what are the activities, what are the products, what are the services, what are the behaviors that people will have been forced into but actually will like. And I think this affects how enterprises are going to be run. I think this affects how consumers are going to make decisions. I think this is going to affect where people want to live and how they live. I think it's going to affect how people eat, how they maintain their fitness, certainly how they communicate. These are all things that were forced upon us, but some of them might stick. And that's the phase two of the market that we envision. And that's the portfolio we're going to spend the next few years trying to build. It sounds like this crisis has been so substantial that it's given you a chance to really give a long think along with your team to where behaviors are changing, what's been forced upon us. And as you reference, some may be actually turns out good and enjoyed and embraced. So why don't we dive into some of the themes that Highline is really thinking about? I know that technology is a big part of everything and increasingly so in so many ways. Why don't you lay out for us just maybe broadly, but dive down a couple levels if you can, in terms of what this crisis has done for people in terms of their changed use of technology, how you see that evolving, and then take us below the iceberg if you can, not just the Amazons and Zooms, but some of those maybe second order or more nuanced types of businesses or themes that might thrive or be adopted in the future. 
Sure. The first comment I'll make is that if this crisis had hit us 10 years ago before the cloud had really developed, there would have been a much greater disruption to certainly my business, but also to corporate America. My own experience through this crisis is that our entire tech stack is on the cloud, was already on the cloud, so that when this crisis hit, we jumped in our cars, we drove to our homes and flicked on our computers and everything was fine. And for many CEOs out there, whether they made those preparations or not, this experience has solidified the following. First of all, that technology is not generic. Technology is strategic. And if you have great tech, you have an enormous edge over time. But it also made people realize that there is no substitute for being on the cloud and having your tech stack on-premises is just too constraining to compete in today's world. It's too rigid. The cloud is flexible. It's scalable. And I would argue it's safer as well. And so if there were any holdouts about embracing the cloud, well, those doubters are certainly gone. And if there was any doubt in any company who's the most important person in that company? Well, it's not the head of sales or the big revenue generator. It's the head of IT. I think CEOs have experienced an epiphany about the cloud, about the strategic importance of technology. By the way, I think that's kind of obvious. Um, so many people are saying, oh, these trends were in place. This is just speeding them up. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true of cloud adoption, but I think it's a giant leap up for this topic. We look at businesses that are obvious like this, and clearly the digitization of corporations led by phenomenal businesses like Microsoft and ServiceNow and Workday and Salesforce. Everyone realizes that. They've known that already. But we're looking at a few aspects of technology that I think are not so obvious. The first one I point out is cybersecurity. Cybersecurity has to completely change now that employees are dispersed. And so you go from an on-premises-based cybersecurity approach to a cloud-based cybersecurity approach. The solutions needed for that are completely different. I don't think people have figured that out yet. I don't think the great companies have even gone public yet that will address that, although there are a few. So this endpoint security and cloud security become much more important. So that's one area that I don't think is quite obvious yet. I don't think people have really figured that out and allocated the right amount of capital to that. The second is customer service. Every corporation has customers and many interact with their customers through call centers. Well, here we have now a cloud-based telephony and concerns about hygiene that may force these enterprises to experiment with providing customer service in somewhat of a virtual call center. This is all easily done using technology that already exists, that's cloud-based. And I think building a customer service capability like that allows you to tap better, cheaper talent in a more global way. And I think it's going to be more flexible and more resilient for corporations. So those are two areas in technology that I don't think are so obvious, but that I think will become enormous areas of potential investment opportunity. 
Well, if we could switch to the consumer side, I would be grateful because I've found my new favorite term here through you, which is JOMO. <laughs> right. And that means what? So JOMO is the joy of missing out as opposed to FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. Well, first of all, I did not coin this term. I heard it from Professor Adam Grant from Wharton. I've been doing a lot of thinking about how the consumer will evolve. And we define the consumer in the past, especially the young consumer, as a preferring experiences over things, really engaged in social media. That's why I thought about fear of missing out. Like you were obsessively looked at Instagram and Facebook so you wouldn't miss out on what your friends were doing. Today, I think something has changed within the consumer. Again, this change was forced upon the consumer, but some of this will stick because some of it is attractive. I think now the framework of the consumer is not experiences over things, but rather lifestyle over style. It's not exactly inconsistent with experiences over things, but it's a different framework. People have been forced to sleep a little extra in the morning because they didn't have to commute to work. They are eating healthy homemade foods, spending quality time with their families. That's a lifestyle people are really finding attractive right now. And yeah, JOMO is the joy of missing out, missing out on the commute, missing out on that annoying shave in the morning, missing out on annoying meetings, missing out on putting on a tie. You get the point. Like it's, there's a certain joy of not having to do that. And I can say personally, I'm sitting here at a time when a tremendous amount of thinking is required and I'm not getting bogged down by annoying meetings. It's providing the time for me to sit and ponder what needs to be done. Nothing replaces thinking time. That's why JOMO is so important. And then the other thing I'd say about the consumer, and I don't think people have really picked up on this, and I don't think people have really thought this through, but up until COVID, it was an obsession with privacy and protection of data. And governments in Europe and in the U.S. were gearing up for enormous fights with the tech companies over privacy. And at the snap of a finger, that's gone totally 180. And now we're talking about sharing customer information, consumer information across tech companies to enable contact tracing. This is a huge 180 on privacy, and it's a big deal. And so I'm interested to watch how that evolves over time, because to really combat COVID, this kind of data sharing might be necessary, but I wonder if it's opening up a can of worms in terms of privacy that we can't go back on. So these are all things I find very, very fascinating about the consumer experience. And then I go on and say, okay, let's peel the onion a little bit. Let's look below the iceberg. Consumers are finding substitutes for things now. So for example, in the past, my children might have used Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat to interact with each other. But now video games have gotten so elaborate that they're meeting there on the video game itself to hang with each other. I think something really wonderful is happening to the whole video game ecosystem because just as they're evolving beyond the game itself, the cloud is enabling more and more people of different levels of wealth to access gaming because the cloud is providing for 
connectivity for those who can't afford a console. Google last year came out with a service called Stadia, and you can play your favorite games right now without having to buy that $400 console. And they've leveraged off their GPU capabilities in the cloud and there's the improvements in bandwidth, the reductions in latency. And now you can play NBA 2K or other favorite games with your friends in the cloud. And so I think the combination of all these things is causing a sea change in the market size or the TAM for gaming. And I think it could be as large as a billion people large eventually. I think that's how much potential video games have. And so uh, the ones who benefit the most are publicly traded video game publishers. And so I think that's a really interesting going on in the consumer world as well. Our firm also has pretty controversial views on home builders because these stocks have really gotten beaten up through the COVID market turmoil. But we think they're huge long-term winners. And I don't think it's so obvious, but they got two things going for them. The first is people have already been migrating South and there's better tax regimes in the South, better job opportunity in the South. And that's where the home builders basically have their property and their exposure. So the home builders are long beneficiaries from the move to the South and the Southwest. That's number one. Number two is if we really go to a world where work from home is tolerated or corporations have headquarters, but also have their employees working in multiple hubs around the country, there's less and less need to live in New York or Boston or Chicago and more and more ability to have your career, have your successful career and live somewhere else. And that place is likely to be in the South. So I really feel like home builders are well positioned for this. And to the extent there's any whiff of de-urbanization as a result of COVID, and I'm not sure there will be, but there might be, this is a huge benefit to home builders. So the ability to buy some of these names at a discount to book is very rare and you've got it now. And I, we just think it's an incredible opportunity. So some of our, our thoughts in, in the consumer world right now. It's a fascinating thing that we've experienced with the crisis and folks working from home, especially in a high density area like New York City and just the potential whole scale rethink of the office model and what that might mean for how people hire. And as you say, the sort of where the population, you know, long term might migrate to just given lower costs, better weather, certainly lower taxes. I'm curious if we could also talk about payments. We were talking a little bit before about privacy and payments comes up occasionally in, in the privacy debate as well. But I know you guys have done a lot of work on payments. There's certainly in a COVID world, a potential accelerant there of paying digitally or Apple Pay. What do you see there? The big picture of where you see payments going? What do those opportunities look like? And then if there's an old guard, what might that old guard look like in terms of a threat to be disrupted? Sure. Well, first, the evolution from cash-based societies to digital societies has, it's a long-term trend. This is nothing new. Although there are countries like the US where it's much more advanced, Germany, Italy have been resistant to it. And I think hygiene, the near-term focus on hygiene certainly will be an accelerant to this, although in countries like, in countries like Germany and Italy, it may 
really forced some businesses to change that have been reluctant to change over time. So I think that this trend continues and it's a powerful trend. But you combine that with the concurrent evolution in the use of data for better customer service, the insistence on the customer for an easy, quick checkout experience. Now they can, you can use tap to pay, which is getting very rapid adoption. And when you use tap to pay, if the merchant's clever, they're gathering your data and they're using that data to promote to you better to develop customer loyalty programs. And of course, this then only strengthens the case for card acceptance and the adoption of digital. It also, by the way, cuts down on fraud. This is well on its way in the US, but not quite as advanced in Europe. So what we envision is a significant acceleration in digitization of payments in Europe. It should have a pretty important impact on companies like Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and others that are involved in that. It comes at the expense of some hardware companies who don't have data gathering capabilities. It comes at the expense of cash, and it comes at the expense of criminals and people who cheat on taxes. Like this is all, this is all beneficial to society. And if you also think about the rapid adoption of subscription models, particularly in the U.S., Subscription models can only be run on cards. They can't be run on cash. So there's all kinds of themes coming together to accelerate the adoption of cards and the digital payment ecosystem over cash. And these stocks sold off during COVID. People were too focused on the near-term recession and not on the long-term acceleration of growth. And you could have bought any of the companies I mentioned at an enormous discount over the COVID crisis and gotten a beautiful entry point. So I want to talk about another theme, which is supply chain. You've labeled it just in time versus just in case. Tell us what you're looking at there. I know some of it relates back to China and some of the risks of being vulnerable to a break in the supply chain. How do you see the COVID experience influencing the rethink that companies are having right now? The CEOs who I've gotten to speak to or whose comments I've read have had it. They're done. They're done with just in time. It's not working for them. The pain of missing out on sales because you don't have enough inventory is too great. The first part of the pain was due to the US and China tariff war, which caused disruptions in supply chains, and now this COVID. And so what I hear over and over again is that there's a willingness to do two things. Number one is to pay a little bit more and reshore your supply chain instead of having very long lead times to Asia for your supplies. People are willing to pay more and have it close by and therefore available and faster. But the second thing, which I think is really important, is companies are willing to invest more in working capital. Just in time was a philosophy that all of us were taught in business school that allows you to reduce your capital investment and therefore improve your return on capital. But it's been replaced by a focus on resiliency. There's a willingness to pay more and own more at the company. And it all speaks to higher levels of working capital. And I think there's some enormous ramifications of this. I mean, we think that the not obvious trade here is to look at the logistics companies 
in domestic United States, trucks, rails, the FedExes of the world, the industrial warehouses of the world. These are all going to be used in overdrive as our manufacturers change to these philosophies. And so that's something I think that's very, very interesting. So we're investing a lot of time and effort in studying those companies. We also think that as factories are reshored, they will be embracing modern technologies, and that's robotics and automation. So there's a whole bunch of publicly traded global robotics and automation companies that should see a real step up in demand and interest for their products as a result of this. The only knock on U.S. manufacturing has been that the U.S. worker is more expensive than the Asian worker. Well, if you use enough automation, if you use enough robotics, that's not that relevant. And I think that's what companies uh, will be embracing. And again, like this was not forced on the CEOs until the China trade war happened and until COVID happened. And now they've looked at it and said, you know what? I will make these investments because it's more resilient. And resiliency is more important than paying rock bottom prices for my supply chain. It's interesting. It's sort of like the post-global financial crisis for the banks, where it was all about how do I be more resilient with capital, lower value at risk? And this is more on the corporate level. You mentioned a couple of stocks there. You mentioned trucking stocks, FedEx. These seem like, all things considered, pretty low multiple stocks, so not really in the price. Is that fair to say, just in terms of valuation? Yeah. Just for the record, I don't own any of them yet. We're actively studying them. We think they're great candidates. They're not stocks that I've considered owning in a little while. But now I think perhaps their day might come soon. And so uh, this is on our list. One thing that you've discussed as well is a little away from valuation and industry analysis, but you've talked about leadership and looking at who is at the helm of a company, who's the driving force, that person and and the team that that person surrounds themselves with. Walk us through your thought process around evaluating the company, its valuation, but then also the people at the company, the styles, and then specifically this thing called leadership. How important is it for you and your team as you think about getting along a stock? Well, there's a difference between leading in person and leading remotely. And I think all of us as individuals are experiencing that. The ways that I got my team acting in concert and acting at the best of their abilities were totally different than the ways I'm using today. And so just reflecting on our own experience, I realized that CEOs of enormous organizations must also be forced to adapt to this world. And clearly some are doing it better and some haven't figured that out yet, but also some weren't well suited to this all along. And we're starting to see who those were. I have cited to my own team, Moderna, the Boston-based biotech company that's really done an incredible job of developing a vaccine rapidly and getting it into the clinic and moving it along as fast as possible. And you got to step back and say, where did these guys come from and how is it that they were in a position to have this kind of impact. What is it about the leaders of that company that allowed them to do this? Yeah, they had great science, but so do 200 other biotech companies. 
So the first thing I'd say of the, the management of Moderna, and I've gone up and gotten to know the CEO and gotten to know the top five or six executives, they made an enormous investment in completely digitizing their company. These guys understood that a total digital tech stack gives you speed and that speed in today's world is important. They've connected their R&D to their manufacturing digitally. So for example, their R&D scientists are not sitting there in white jackets with test tubes. They're programming on the computer. And as they run an experiment on a new messenger RNA compound, it goes right to their manufacturing facility digitally and is ready in 48 hours instead of in three months. They have a huge edge because they view technology as strategic. We talked about it earlier in this call. This is a company that knew that already. The rest of us, we had to figure it out later. They knew it already. The second thing is they knew that they need to have an abundance of capital in order to make sure they could be as ambitious as they wanted. This is the most ambitious, aggressive management team I've come across in biotechnology. They don't want to cure one thing. They want to cure everything. And that ambition was very attractive to me as an investor, but it also made them realize they needed an enormous amount of capital. So when they hit the COVID crisis, they had all the money they needed, they had all the manufacturing capacity they needed, and they had already made the investments in a digital infrastructure. They now had the edge over all of their competitors. And now look what's happening. Their stock is up threefold since COVID started. So I take the lessons from companies like this. I watch TV. I see who's resonating. Dr. Fauci. Here's a guy who's under enormous political pressure from all sides. And yet, he keeps his cool. He sticks to the facts. And through that, he gets enormous credibility. I've been watching Bill Gates on CNN every few nights. Um, here's a guy. Talk about having a lot of capital. Here's a guy who's ambitious, has a lot of capital. And he's like, you know what? I'm ready to help. I know what needs to be done. And his insight has really been resonating. And that's the kind of style people need. And then I, I don't know if you watched The Last Dance. Loved it. Yeah. So good. My whole family would sit around the TV on Sunday night. What great fun it was. Anyway, you got to respect what Phil Jackson accomplished. Like here he had these different personalities. And all he did was build up emotional capital with each of them so he could bring them together into a system that he developed. So he was system-oriented, flexible, but equally ambitious. So these are the kinds of skills I'm looking for in today's world. These are the things working in today's environment. You need to have less of a top-down, process-oriented kind of military decision-making style and more of a distributed, flexible, open-minded, goal-oriented decision-making style. So the kind of CEO who can succeed sitting in their Adidas sweatpants from home is a different kind of person than who succeeded in their fancy three-piece suit at the fancy headquarters. This is a different person who's succeeding today. And as investors, we have to watch for that. And so I think that's a really fascinating part of what's evolved as well. Very interesting. So as we finish up, I wanted to solicit your views on the long-short equity model in hedge funds. You and I have talked about this over the years, and 
one of the things that just seems obvious is that the nature of this crisis has been so all-consuming from a news standpoint. I mean, it's even pushed aside the unending analysis of Trump and some of the back-and-forth politics. That's how significant this has been. It's, I think, made 2008 in terms of focus from a news standpoint even small. Has this been an opportunity from a bottoms-up, long-short, and thematic oriented manager to really step back in a way and to try to survey what the change that's coming as a result of this. Is this completely unique for you in terms of your career? And as you think about long short equity going forward, are the opportunities that might emerge from this? It sounds like this crisis might be giving you just a ton to think about over the coming years in terms of positioning longs and shorts in the portfolio. Is that fair to say? Yes. This is the greatest thing to happen to long short equity in many, many, many years. And not a minute too soon. Because the last decade has been frustrating. Imagine trying to keep up with an incredibly well-performing S&P 500 that had tiny vol. We haven't looked good as an industry over the last decade. It's been a struggle to remind people of our relevance. And then this happens. And literally overnight, the markets go to hell and we start to earn enormous amounts of alpha day in and out, over and over again. This is going to be a much better environment for long short equity. It was in the short term through this crisis, but my point is it will even be through phase two through the longer terms. And so we needed this. We needed the world to move to a place where there are distinct winners and losers, and this change in society is providing it for us. And so this is going to be a much, much better environment for firms like ours who pick winners and short losers. Well, Jake, it's been a pleasure to catch up today. I'm glad we had an opportunity to do this and hope you and your family are well, and we will, I'm sure, talk again soon. Thanks, Dean. Stay safe and well. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.